Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of The Decision Lab, a socially conscious applied research firm that uses behavioral science to improve outcomes for all of society. My name is Brooke Struck, Research Director at TDL, and I'll be your host for the discussion. My guest today is Paul Dolan, Professor of Behavioral Science at the London School of Economics and author of Happy Ever After, Escaping the Myth of the Perfect Life. In today's episode, we'll be talking about pleasure, purpose, and the good life, and how to promote good lives throughout society. Paul, thanks for joining us today. So along with some LSE colleagues, you recently published a call for the UK government to create a well-being impacts agency. Now, in that call, you propose collecting a new type of data, which you call well-bees, to orient policy decisions towards the well-being of citizens beyond just longevity and GDP. What are well-bees and how do you propose that we calculate them? So there are two things that people care about fundamentally in their lives, and that is how well they live and for how long. <laughs> and we've had a pretty good sense of how long by measuring life expectancy, looking at mortality risks. The interesting question there is how you capture the how well bit. And there are various ways in which that's done across policy. In healthcare, for example, we have what's called quality adjusted life years, where the life years, the how long bit, is adjusted for quality based on dimensions of health that people care about. So pain, anxiety, depression, um, usual activities, physical functioning, and all of these effects on how well are captured in a single number that multiplies the duration of a health state by its severity. So you get a better life when you live longer and better. So it's really analogous. Well-bees or well-being adjusted life years are really just another extension of qualities. I did a lot of work on qualities in my early life as a health economist. So it's in many ways a natural extension of that. To have a measure of quality of life that captures the richness of our experiences beyond just health effects. So it would account for the mental health effects. It would account for our all the things that matter to us, the quality and nature of our relationships, all expressed in a single measure of happiness or well-being, we use various terms. But it's essentially a sort of broader definition of well-being, quality of life, that would then be multiplied by the duration to express it in a unit that could be applied to policymaking. So in your latest book, you put a lot of attention on escaping these myths of the perfect life. And you use data, I think, quite similar to the well-bees that you're discussing, to show how some of those myths get put ahead of what it is that we actually care about in life, and that we're not always well served by these myths or these narratives. But you talk about both pleasure and purpose. And it seems like purpose has stories or narratives, life arcs built into them. So how do we not only tear down these myths of a perfect life, but also build up a variety of narratives in which people can discover themselves and have purpose? Yeah, it's a really good question. I like the way that you've managed to draw attention to both books. So we should promote both of those. <laughs> Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. You've done a brilliant job for me. But it's a good question to think about how I would relate what I talk about in Happiness by Design, which you're right, is about pleasure and purpose with the stories that I discuss in Happy Ever After. And I think it's why I've gone, I went to great lengths, although I wasn't really obviously aware of what I was going to do next when I wrote Happiness by Design. But I went to great lengths to insist that pleasure and purpose are both located in experiences, that they're not stories and evaluations. I mean, of course, stories and evaluations are important. And we can come on to talk about those in a second. But fundamentally, happiness is located in our experiences of feeling pleasure and feeling purpose. So I can, of course, reflect on this conversation afterwards. I think it's an amazingly purposeful experience and it might draw it down into future stories that I might tell. But in the moment now, we're having a conversation that is actually quite enjoyable, I think, and also feels quite purposeful. And it's in that experience that it matters and it shows up. And that's what I try to 
doing happiness by design is to make a case for purposes and experience. And that's not been thought about in that way before. It has been thought about in these narratives and stories. And I want to talk about narratives and stories. I want to be absolutely clear that I'm not suggesting no one ever has a story about anything. Of course, that would be absurd. And that's its own story, right? If you're going to be sort of anti-narrative to say that narrative shouldn't count, then you just created a narrative in its place. I'm suggesting that it's for each of us to work out what the good and bad stories are and not to be unduly influenced by what society might want for us, what our parents might expect, what our friends, even our idealized selves might think we should do. I think I've just been struck what sort of drew me to doing this research and writing the second book was just how much it appeared that people do live in these narratives about their all too ideal selves. And it just struck me as really interesting because I've never been aware of doing too much of that myself. I'm just kind of sort of get on with stuff that you find interesting. Don't do stuff you don't find interesting. Been incredibly privileged to be able to work as an academic where I can make that choice and not had any sense that I've ever been thinking about what's coming next by doing like what's the story that sits behind why I'm doing this. It's just driven by pleasure and purpose. And so I think I've been quite lucky in that regard. So it's just it's just, just interesting to me that so many people do seem to carry around these kinds of narratives. And as I say, some of those narratives for some of the people, some of the time, but not all of the people all of the time. Right. So let's dig into narrative just a little bit more here. So what's the relationship between purpose and narrative? So I gather we definitely don't want any kind of universalizing narrative. We all should be the same way. We all should tell the same kind of stories and strive for the same kinds of things. But shouldn't we all find ourselves somewhere in some story? So, okay, let's talk about purpose. So I contend that happy lives are ones that find the right balance between pleasure and purpose. But that's for you to work out, right? You could be a pleasure machine, I could be a purpose engine, that's fine. But each of us is going to be happy when we find the right combination of pleasure and purpose. So people are happier when they find the right balance. That's a universal truth, but what the balance is, is not universal. And neither is what activities we find purposeful, right? I mean, you might like gardening, I might fucking hate it. I mean, that's fine. We, you know, we can butt along. <laughs> I don't, it's this prescription, not only should people find purpose, but they should find purpose in the things that I find purposeful. That's a kind of another level. And parents often do that with their kids, right? It's not, they sort of say that they want their kids to be happy. They should really finish that sentence with doing the things that I think they should to make them happy, right? So it's for each of us to work out what brings us purpose. But to do that in a way that is related to the experiences that we get, the feedback that we get from what we do. If you do the gardening and you like gardening, that's great. But not to tell yourself the story that you ought to be the kind of person that enjoys gardening or to do gardening because your dad's a gardener or to do gardening because you want to show off the flowers that you make at the end of it to all your friends. I mean, they would be reasons to do gardening. They're actually very legitimate reasons for people to behave in the ways they do, but they're not ways that are necessarily conducive to them being happier. Right. So sticking with this theme of differences among people and their stories and their narratives, in this recent call that you made for establishing a UK well-being impacts agency, you note that we should be focusing not just on maximizing the total volume of well-being that is created, but also on focusing on equitable distribution of well-being. What do you think we need to drive really full-blooded debates around distributions of well-being? We don't seem to be getting those distribution discussions off the ground all that well around other goods, let's say, in scare quotes that we care about. How are we going to get that discussion untracked around well-being? Yeah, interesting. So what other distributional domains are you thinking of? Right. So I'm thinking about, uh, for instance, income and wealth. There's a lot of debate about how they should be more equitably and fairly distributed within society 
but are we really making that much progress towards changing the distribution? Remains to be yeah, seen. Yeah, so I mean, sticking with income for a second then. So there's sort of boundaries of fairness, right? So most people would consider it to be entirely fair and legitimate that some people earn more money than others. Equity is not equality. I know you know this, but I'm just going making the point that we might expect the CEO of a company to earn 20 times more than the average wage of the workers. By and large, that sort of broadly was what the salary differences were for a long period of time, roughly speaking. We might think it unfair that it's 200 times. And that's kind of where we've got to in some of the ratios that we're observing in some of the markets now. So some inequality is fair, too much inequality is unjust. And the problem is, of course, agreeing whether it's 20 or 200. And I think that's the problem is that we don't have a consensus about what to reward people who have been more harder, whilst at the same time showing regard for people who have less talent or basically largely been unfortunate. I mean, that's mostly what drives how we end up in life is luck. We don't like to have that as a narrative, by the way. That's, a, that's an awful story. We love agency. People will say things like, I make my own luck. Well, I mean, you can put yourself in the place of opportunity. You can't make randomness. I mean, that's not that's, that's entirely impossible. Yeah, people will try to claim ownership of it. I think the problem is that we don't have a broad consensus on what level of inequality is fair. But I do think that we do have a consensus that we, as a society and in public policy, ought to be showing more regard for the worst off. I mean, you know, there's statements about how you judge a society by how well it treats its worst off. And we often look for polarised differences between left and right, Republicans, Democrats, whatever. And actually, there's a lot of similarities as well. We just don't, they're not as exciting to discuss in the press and elsewhere. I mean, broadly, everybody agrees that society should be looking after the worst off more. The question is, who's worst off and by how much? <laughs> but that ethical principle is universally shared. So I think paying attention to, and then we move into well-being, the well-being, those that suffer the most, right? So this is not necessarily, in, although there'd be a high correlation between these things, not necessarily in the conditions and circumstances of their lives, but actually in their experiences, in their mental health, in the anxiety and the depression and the mental health problems that people experience. That's real suffering in real people. I think we should hopefully be able to move towards a world where we can coalesce around a consensus that people who suffer are the ones that we should be giving greater priority to. And I think that that's where we hopefully will get to in the distribution of well-being. So one final thing, though, about the time frame over which those assessments are made. I make a case in our report for well-being over the lifetime, and I think it's important that I draw attention to that because when we look at inequality of income, say, or wealth is actually a much better measure, we often just take a snapshot. What's the distribution of income now, wealth now, across society? Well, of course, younger people would expect to be less wealthy than older people. <laughs> that's kind of, you know, by and large, generally, that's what you see, an accumulation of assets through the life course, not for everybody, of course. So what you want to do is because you would really ideally take a lifetime perspective. It really matters to me to know whether you're on a trajectory that's up or down, right? I mean, that's it really matters to me how I would judge inequality in any one moment, about whether your income or wealth is good or bad compared to other people in the knowledge of where you've come from and where you're going. And similarly with well-being, I'm very passionately in favor of reducing inequalities over the lifetime, not necessarily any one moment in time. Everyone is an egalitarian. The question is of what? And for me, I've held a long commitment to reducing unfair inequalities, because I mean, some of these will be fair as we talked about with effort and talent, reducing unfair inequalities over the lifetime. And I think the wellbeing lens enables us to do that. Hi there, and welcome back to The Decision Corner, the podcast of The Decision Lab. I've been chatting with Paul Dolan about measuring well-being and the need to balance pleasure with purpose. So far, we've discussed wellbees, which we can use to measure well-being. We've also discussed challenges around trying to define the perfect life, heavy on the air quotes there. 
In the second half of the episode, we'll talk about the equity of well-being. Discussions around who gets what are always polarizing, of course, so we'll also get into how to find more common ground in those discussions. Stay tuned. You mentioned discussions about supporting the worst off and the difficulty in reaching consensus about where a just level of inequality is. My sense, just taking the pulse of public discourse around this, is that there seems to be a lot of polarization, or maybe that's just the way that it's portrayed, that there's a group of people who are saying, well, the current distribution is unfair. And then the response is to say, well, we're not going to go to a situation where everybody gets exactly the same thing. We're not all going to become communists. And I use that only slightly facetiously because some people actually do say that. But what we're missing is that middle ground of, okay, well, if we agree that all the way at this end is not good and all the way at the other end isn't good either, how are we going to get a little bit of progress towards finding somewhere in the middle that we're a little bit more happy with? We don't seem to get past these facile starting gates. No, we don't. And I'm going to be hosting my own podcast soon called The Duck Rabbit Podcast, which is exactly about polarized debates. Because you know the duck rabbit, and have you seen the image, you know, where you can look at it? And it's obviously both animals in the image, but it's very hard once you see one to see the other one. It's a nice metaphor for how we become polarized because you'll see one image, find it increasingly difficult to see the other. You'll surround yourself with people who see it as a duck. So in the end, how could anybody possibly see it as a rabbit? In fact, people who see it as a rabbit are clearly mad. And we're all right to continue on believing it's a duck, affirmed in the belief that we're right about things. And that is what happens. And I think there's a comfort in that. There's a comfort in being around people that are like you and having similar beliefs and values is also another similarity dimension as well as other attributes and characteristics are. It reduces transaction costs, right? If you and I know we agree on things, we haven't go through all this effort to understand what the other one might think. So it creates a lot of bonding social capital. The problem is it undermines bridging social capital between different groups. So how do you go about creating more of that? Well, it's why I drew attention earlier to paying attention to some of the similarities. Most people, irrespective of their political persuasion, have very similar concerns about economic security, about the welfare of their family. This is a part of the human condition. Republicans and Democrats are different, but they're not that different. They're all they're both humans, right? I mean, <laughs> with fundamentally very similar underlying concerns. So I think if we can find places where there are these agreements, which is why I use the CEO salary, it's like, I do think that by and large, there would be a consensus that it would be somewhere between 10 and 100. So when we see distributions of income that are outside of those boundaries, you're going to take great swathes of the population with you by bringing it back within those boundaries. I mean, the other thing to say is that we need to distinguish between feeling strongly about something and also feeling strongly about the ability to, for people to disagree with you. And I think that sometimes if we feel strongly about something, we think that if we allow for disagreement and dissent, that undermines the value of our beliefs. So makes me a bit more uncertain about whether I believe what I think to be true. And we find that discomforting sometimes. So I'm actively trying to encourage in academia, for example, adversarial collaboration, the idea that you bring together people that you know explicitly disagree with one another to work on a research project. And hopefully that way... In terms of the decision-making process itself, you so we start to, to collect this information about distributions of well-being, and maybe we have some more mature conversations about where we think that the, the boundaries lie for what's a fair distribution or an unfair distribution. In terms of the decision-making process itself, you propose that a more diverse group of stakeholders needs to be at that table. In brief, that means sharing power with a wider circle. And we've seen time and time again that calls for power to be shared more widely generally don't get such a hot reception from the people who are holding power currently. So how do we actually make a bit more traction on this front of 
getting more people at the table in terms of having some decision-making around where those fair boundaries are and also what to do about it. Well, you don't ask easy questions. I mean, none of these these questions are straightforwardly answered. If I appear to be giving a straightforward answer, I'm not doing justice to the seriousness of the question. I mean, we've seen in response to the pandemic, I would say that 100% of all the advisors and the politicians involved in the decision-making pretty much around the world. I mean, I'm sure that's not true entirely in every country, but are able to work from home on full salaries and have good pensions. They are nearly all 50 plus or minus five years or whatever. I mean, of course, we had a US president that was a bit older than that. But there's a very, very select group. By the way, they all, of course, obviously work in the public sector. They're naturally cautious and risk-averse. So you have a sweet spot of decision-makers and advisors that have driven the policy responses. Not in itself to say that the policy responses have been disproportionate or wrong, but if there had been a wider range of perspectives, even across age, with younger and older people involved in the decision-making process, or across different disciplines, across different perspectives and experiences, we would have more confidence in those decisions being the right ones because it properly accounted for a broader range of perspectives and experience. I mean, we all know that diversity of perspective leads to better decision-making. There's been lots of evidence shown that across different sectors. It just sort of has loomed large to me during the course of the pandemic, where there hasn't even been, seems to me, very much interesting finding out what different people might think about the policy measures. So, for example, when we essentially locked up old people in care homes for a year, not allowing them access to families where, for some of the patients with the dementia, for example, their contact would come from seeing faces that they recognise and they would keep them going. You know, not having that access for the last year has been disproportionate in terms of its well-being consequences. But it may be inquiry into whether that was actually what those families would have wanted for themselves or for their relatives would have been a good start. And I appreciate that responses to pandemic have to be made agile in a very quick way. But feeling that those different voices are around the decision-making table would give me more confidence in the decisions. And I say this, let me just finish this, make this point a bit more clearly perhaps. We went into a national lockdown in the UK on uh, 23rd of March, uh, 2020, I think. Now, again, this is not in itself substantively to say anything about the rightness of that decision. But I woke up the morning after thinking about the kids that were in the classrooms of my children who were in uh, lower secondary school, high school, as you call it, who were going back into homes where they really shouldn't be spending very much time at home, where school is the one place of care and attention and food, and thinking, who is reflecting their voices when the decisions to lock down were being made? And again, we might reach the same conclusions about shown schools, but if there are people there that have those perspectives and experiences in mind, then I'd be more confident in those measures. And I don't think that there was anybody with a, with a deep understanding of those vulnerable children around the table. You talk about the power sharing. I mean, you can get into Marxian arguments of power structures in uh, society. We could spend a very long time talking about the relative merits of, of Marx. No answer is ever straightforward. Most of the time, I think there is, we can overestimate, we can overstate differences and conflict. I think sometimes, you know, we want to draw attention to the polarization, for example. We talked about that before. I do think that we're, by and large, humanity is kind of muddling through sharing in some substantive sense. Although, of course, notwithstanding the fact that there are huge power differences, and you're absolutely right that a lot of the time those with it are not going to want to share it. Why would they? They've done very well out of the current existing arrangements. So there will always be a case for and always be a place for protest and pushback and civil rights movements and 
organizations that push the boundaries of the legitimacy in order to take back um, some of that power or share it around more widely. So it's a very complex question. But I'm just generally optimistic about progress, I think. Stephen Pink has made this point in a lot of his work, hasn't he? You know, that we're kind of moving. We're actually doing all right. We're kind of moving forward. And I understand all of the challenges and inequalities. Of course, there are. But well, it's a, I'm uh, optimistic a very nice note. I mean, optimism things. is an important thing to conserve, right? If you give up the idea that you could make progress, then you certainly won't. Optimism isn't the guarantee, but at least you get to roll the dice. Thinking about what it is that our decision makers and our decision-making apparatus serves to improve, this idea of the public good comes up and, you know, having Welby's having some data allows us to get some quantitative traction on the public good. Is the public good a real thing or is the public good a story? Is the public good a narrative? Yeah, I mean, I have this kind of vague sense that, that when we say the decisions are being made in the interest of the public good, that it's supposed to be some kind of hazy gesture towards the general well-being of the most people, which, yeah. as you say, we'd be really in a better position to make those kinds of decisions if we had some good data on what the impacts of those decisions actually were. Yeah. But I mean, a society as a whole is also something that has a narrative. Individuals have their own narratives and how they connect to their society, but the society as a whole tries to trace an arc for itself. Or do you not think that there are societal narratives in that way or that they're not helpful? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, that is one of the things that comes to mind in, in that question is cultural variation. You know, that um, sort of generally Western liberal democracies are, are much more focused on individuals, whereas, of course, Asian countries are much more locating themselves in their social context, right? So you ask me who I am, and I say that I'm pulled over, and I tell you about my job, and I tell you about my family and my kids, whereas Asians will often answer that question about I am the father of the what has been often locate yourself much more in the context of your environment and there's been lots of research on that I don't know if some of the stuff where you, where you know when people look down in fish tanks have you seen that we would look in the fish tank and say there's a big fish there's a small fish whereas and that's about status and everything else that comes from that yeah it's very individual whereas in um in East Asian culture and I'm doing a huge disservice to this research trying to summarize it in 30 seconds but we'll look in the fish tank and locate the fish in the context of where they are in the tank so that's literally looking at the world through a different lens. And there will be huge variations about how people do that within countries as well as across cultures. It's really interesting that I think, I mean, I don't know how been, whether this will manifest itself as our children get older, but how it appears as if, if you're talking about a very generalizable spectrum of left to right, that our daughter is just naturally more right wing than our son. Our son is much more looking at inequalities and social justice and they're brought up in the same family by the same parents but they just have very different lenses that they're looking at the world through and i think a proper appreciation of that difference that you're that we're looking at the same image but you're seeing a duck and i'm seeing a rabbit and we're both convinced that that's what the image is is really important to understand and that's why i do think there is something that comes out of that to speak to now about the public good aspect or the collective the fact that there is a social welfare there's an aggregation of individual utilities to use the language of economics but we're very interdependent those they are individual utilities you have an individual utility function i do too but they're interdependent my welfare is affected by yours sometimes i'm envious of you <laughs> other times i feel empathy and compassion sometimes i'm glad that i'm doing better than you <laughs> other times I feel sorry for you that you're doing less well. So there is, there's huge interdependence. So there must be something that's in the aggregation. There has to be a role. Of course, there's a legitimate role for the government and the state. Question is, of course, the boundaries. And I suppose my own 
journey over this last year has been one of realization of just how important liberty and freedoms are. I didn't realize quite how much I valued those until they're taken away, until there's such incredible compliance with some of the restrictions that I think before we would never have seen as acceptable. I never worried before, actually, about the benevolent. It's just Brits kind of, we see our state as quite benevolent, really. I mean, we have quite a nice relationship with the state. I think we think by and large it does good stuff. But we all know, you know, that once powers are appropriated, they're given back less. The income tax is the obvious classic example. That was a temporary tax, right? <laughs> it's never gone away. I do have some concern. I think it's a legitimate concern that some of the state powers that have been appropriated over this last year will be they're a bit reluctant and less willing to give back. I don't know where I've gone on this meandering response. I've just basically a stream of consciousness. Maybe we'll try to sew that up by coming back to this (laughs) idea of the duck rabbit. It's interesting you mentioned over the last year, one of the things you've realized is that your personal liberties are something you value much more than you thought you did before. Looking at, uh, I would argue, probably not entirely dissimilar evidence, what's really come to the fore for me is about social connections. It's about yeah. other people. It's I'm really not all that worried about myself. I'm worried a lot about other people and about yeah. my connections to them. So if you're a, a liberty duck, I'm a, I'm a society rabbit or a <laughs> something like that. This maybe is something to think about in terms of the collection of well-being data as well, that what we're looking for in bringing a diverse group of people and a diverse set of perspectives to the table is to make sure that even looking at the same data, we don't immediately jump to this one conclusion that it's clearly a duck or clearly a rabbit, that there's a bit of problematizing that goes on there. And we hedge our bets about whether in fact it's a duck or whether it's in fact a rabbit. And those things are stories, right? So the individual data points are what they are, but how we put them together, that's a narrative or a story. I mean, that's a maybe a bit of a contortion of the term. No, I completely agree. And I, ever you pay attention to becomes important because you're paying attention to it. I agree that there's been lots of manifestations of solidarity and in it togetherness that have come about of this last year. I think my concern has been that we've, well, in some ways, I suppose there's a fear management issue that I've been troubled by. I completely am in favor of encouraging behavioral responses that take regard for other people and draw attention to the consequences of my actions for other people. But when we've, as well as that, or actually arguably more than that, stoked up individuals' own perceived risks of their own threat that they face. That feels very unethical to me. In the kind of behavioural science that I've applied, I think we want to be doing nudges in ways that don't lie to people, that remain honest, and we design environments that nudge people in a particular direction, but we're not manipulating them to act in that way. And I do feel that there's a question mark over the way that fear has been stoked to get personal fear has been stoked to get people to respond in particular ways. But that notwithstanding, I completely agree with you about coming to the data with a more circumspect approach. And we've had a world of uncertainty for the last year or more. How anybody can be certain about what they know how to respond to that? Given that we've got all these welfare concerns, how we weight them and trade them off against one another, and what the counterfactuals would have looked like are just impossible for us to know. So I am very, very uncomfortable with people who know for sure what the right approach should be. Because I don't know how they can. And they can be very confident that this is what we ought to be doing compared to other things, but they can't know for sure. So you must be open, surely, to the fact that I can see a duck when you're convinced it's a rabbit or vice versa. I mean, that has to be the case, especially in a world of radical uncertainty. That image can keep changing all the time. And to know all along, it's a duck, it must be a duck, and we're sticking with it. That's what troubles me. I'm certain in my uncertainty 
and I'm certain that we need to be listening more to one another's perspectives on how best to respond to not just the pandemic, but how to appropriately organise society or where popular the boundaries of the state are. These are all hugely challenging questions that my daughter and son will look at very, very differently, I'm sure, as they grow older. And I want to be encouraging that difference and finding ways in which we can bring them together to have a conversation with one another. That strikes me as a very eloquent place to tie up this conversation, this idea that we need to have good information out there in the ecosystem. And as you bring forward with your LSE colleagues, information about well-being is really important to have in that conversation. But the idea that just having that information is going to show conclusively, this is the direction that we must head and there are no choices to make anymore. That's much more than what just having good information can promise. And we should be really wary about any kind of approach or messaging that kind of leans in that direction. Well, Paul, thank you very much for this conversation today. It's been great. Thank you. No, good. Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more about Applied Behavioral Insights, you can find plenty of materials on our website, thedecisionlab.com. There, you'll also be able to find our newsletter, which features the latest and greatest developments in the field, including these podcasts, as well as great public content about biases, interventions, and our project work.